This evening we're back in the book of James and we're going to, Lord willing, attempt to explore two important things this evening. Firstly, what does a mature Christian faith look like? And secondly, what does it mean to be double-minded? So as we start out attempting to do that this evening, let's turn to our passage found in James chapter 1. This is on page 1011, if you're using one of the church Bibles. James chapter 1. We will pick up our text from verse 2 in James chapter 1. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a, a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we spent some time looking at how Christians can consider trials as joy, didn't we? In doing so, we spoke about how this outlook for most people is not a natural response. Yet as a work of the Holy Spirit, Christians are brought to a place of maturity in the faith where trials and hardships can be counted as joy. So with this in mind, we move on to our verse, verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So it's here in this verse that it sets out that the end goal for every believer is that a Christian's faith will become mature. Mature to a point that faith can be viewed as, as perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And one of those crucial key ingredients that brings a believer's faith to maturity is wisdom. And it's that very wisdom that the Lord uses to have a Christian recognize, recognize the trials, the difficult things happening in their life as a sanctifying work. This is the wisdom that will stop a believer being thrown off course during those difficult times as if they're being tossed around in their faith to and fro. Now it's important to know that when we talk about faith becoming perfect and complete, this does not mean that a believer achieves some sort of sinless perfection. And it's important to highlight this because if you love church history like I do, then you'll know that there are some ditches that people have fallen into over previous generations. So right off the bat in big bold letters as Paul and David would say, let us be crystal clear. We are all great sinners in need of a great saviour. And a great and perfect saviour has been provided 
a great saviour in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only one that has ever walked this earth sinless, being both perfect and complete and righteous in himself. Faith in anything else, including other religions, will not provide salvation. I mentioned a few moments ago, didn't I, about church history, and some of you will recognise the name George Whitfield back um, in the 1700s. And if you're familiar with Whitfield, you may know that in his younger years at Oxford University, he became part of a, a zealous, enthusiastic group that gathered to, to study the Bible and to go out doing good works. This group of friends become known as the Holy Club. Now, interestingly, among the members of this small group were the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. You may recognise these men as the founders of the the Methodist Church, and as great hymn writers. And indeed, we, we sing many of the songs that they wrote here at South Street. However, what's interesting to note is that theologically in those early years at Oxford, and for a decade or so after, up until 1738, John Wesley especially held some pretty unhelpful and unbiblical views on justification. Now, justification, just in case you're not familiar with this term, is the moment in time when a believer goes from being guilty to not guilty in God's eyes. Perfectly free from any charge of guilt in the full merit of Christ reckoned to their personal account. And as John MacArthur puts it, it's the reversal of God's attitude toward the sinner. Many of us probably use the word saved, and it's important that we're clear about these things in our minds because the process and sequence of what happens when a Christian is saved is both significant and really important. Justification is, is an event. Sanctification is then a process that follows. After a believer is saved, the Bible talks about this as, as being born again. The Holy Spirit then comes and fills that person. And one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit doing this is to have a believer become more and more like Christ as they grow in Christian maturity. Now for some, like the thief on the cross, that life may only last minutes or hours. And for others, we may be Christians for decades. And for every moment after a believer is saved, they are being sanctified. That's sanctification. Now, I'm stressing this order for a reason. Firstly, because the huge majority of people in the world who believe in some sort of heaven thinks that they are saved by being a good person, which completely puts the cart before the horse. It completely removes Christ and is a, a tragic lie that will send millions of people to hell. And I'm also stressing this order because of some teaching that from time to time can sneak into the church. So going back to the theology of John Wesley in those early years, the line between justification and sanctification become dangerously blurred to the point that it become non-existent. In those early years, to quote John Wesley, he taught that perfection was possible in conquering the heart and will, and he taught something that is known today as double justification. Now this error mixes up, works with both being the root and the fruit of salvation. 
The John Wesley at the beginning believed and taught that a, a true believer was saved in part by the holy lives that they lived. Now it's important that we know this. This is a different gospel and it's not one that saves. We need to be very clear also that this is not some sort of campaign for antinomianism. Should believers pursue holy living? Absolutely. Should Christians be wanting to glorify the Lord with all we do? To be striving, to be killing and mortifying sin through repentance at every opportunity and with every fibre of our being? Yes, 100%. But do these things contribute towards our salvation? No. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But in the right order, these things are an indication that one is already saved. It is absolutely the right Christian response as you and I look at Christ and his suffering upon that cross in our minds. Pinned there, suffering, as he's being treated as if he committed every believer's individual sin. Of course, when a Christian asks, how do I now live in the light of these truths? How do I grow to love the things that he loves and to, to hate the things that he hates? But the order is critically important. Justification leads to sanctification. Being saved leads to holy living. We read this in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And it's two verses before this that we are told that these works do not contribute towards our salvation. Verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Man cannot be saved through works. We are saved to work. At no point do these bodies become perfect, sinless and righteous in our own good works, regardless of the, the quantity or quality of any achievement. A Christian's plea is utterly guilty, and we point to the blood of Christ for salvation. There's not even a glimpse of a believer trying to justify oneself before the Lord on the day of judgment, no matter how many good or impressive things that we've achieved whilst we lived. What an offence that would be to all that Christ has done. We know, don't we, that any good works, the fruit that a believer bears, is all from the grace of the Lord. It is God bearing fruit through a believer. Just like apples are a product of being connected to a, an apple tree. Our good works, the fruit that we bear as Christians, is the outcome of being rooted in Christ. At no point do these things become, uh, these things become able to bring sinners to salvation. And to continue the apple tree theme, we know, don't we, that a, a healthy, mature apple tree will be producing apples and lots of them. And the same is true for a healthy Christian. The fruit from a believer's life should be an evidence that the person's life is rooted in Christ and filled by his spirit. It's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 
verse 5. Christians are told by Paul to examine themselves, to see whether or not they are really in the faith. And this is so important because if you are a, a fruitless Christian, if you fail to grow in the love of the Lord and for his word, and if you've not come to hate the sin in your life, if you're not bearing fruit, then it would be wise, wouldn't it, to, to go back to the very first step and to examine yourself just as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Works are the fruit and not the root of salvation. Any other way of cutting it takes a believer's eyes off of Christ and onto themselves. It's a works-based gospel disguised as holy living. It takes the work of Christ, doesn't it, upon the cross, and it, it turns it into some sort of tag team event, as if a believer can supplement towards his or her own salvation. So let me be as clear as I can. The blood of Christ is sufficient to pay for the collective sin of every believer that has ever lived and will live in the future. And he doesn't need our help in doing so. You might be sitting there thinking, well, this was 300 years ago, David. I'm sure that we've learnt these lessons now. Well, actually, it seems that we haven't. Like a lot of false teaching, these things get slightly tweaked and repackaged and then come knocking on the door of the church time and time again, often renamed as something else. And in our day, what we've just been speaking about has been tweaked and repackaged as the new perspective on Paul. If you're unfamiliar with this, then let me just give you a quick brief overview. The new perspective on Paul first surfaced in the early 1980s, so some 40 years ago. But it's recently gained momentum due to the writing of N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright, also known as Tom Wright in his popular writing, he argues that the traditional understanding of justification is mistaken. Now this is a huge statement. Because by implication, he's claiming that people have been sharing the gospel wrong for 2,000 years. He claims, and I quote, that a believer's works are included as part of final justification, meaning the believer is saved both on a combination of his faith and his works. Now, these things are very, very serious. Because this is a dangerous distortion leading someone to, to stand before God, not wholly dependent on Christ's work on the cross, but instead pointing also to themselves. It's an absolute disaster. So what is this then? If we understand that we in ourselves cannot become perfect and have a righteousness of our own, we can be thankful that our faith can become perfect in the one who is perfect. A faith that is mature. A faith perfected with patience. A faith perfected by testing. Perfected with wisdom. A faith that is lacking nothing. Verse 5 in James 1. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose 
that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the key to how a Christian views life and the hardships that we face is wisdom. Not worldly wisdom, but wisdom rooted in the word of God. In fact, the wisdom of the world teaches that we we need to roll our sleeves up and to to reach for the stars. To strive in self-improvement and to amass as much stuff as we can along the way. To keep on running onwards and upwards. But the wisdom of the Bible tells us that it's not about an ascent, but a descent. We are to grow downwards in humility, to be less of me and to be more of him. The dispersed Jews were recipients of this letter understood wisdom. They knew that wisdom was much more than ideas, knowledge and intelligence. Judaism emphasised that the, the fear of the Lord was the starting point of wisdom, Proverbs chapter 1. To know that God is holy, holy, holy. To know that God is the creator and we are the creature. Wisdom is a crucial ingredient for the Christian life and is essential for Christian maturity. It is with this wisdom that Christians can understand how their trials have merged into God's plans for their lives. It is from this wisdom that a Christian can count trials and their intended purposes to be a joy because we know that God is sovereign and that they are doing a sanctifying work. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. We're told in scripture to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and to not lean on our own understanding. To not be wise in our own eyes, but to fear the Lord and to turn away from evil. And praise the Lord for his kindness because there will be many here this evening who have this wisdom. How did they get it? Well, verse 5 tells us, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So how does a Christian get this wisdom? He must ask God for it. And that's really, really great news. But we can come to the the creator of the universe who has limitless, infinite resources. And not only that, he is a generous and kind Prayer answering God. And as a church, we can give testimony to that, can't we? If you will, turn with me to to 1 John chapter 5. It's on page 1023 in the church Bible. First John chapter 5. We'll read verse 14 and 15. Now this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have a request that we have asked of him. 
This means that if it's in God's will, he hears and answers these prayers. So if it's God's will for Christians to become wise and mature in their faith, lacking in nothing, then these are prayers that God delights in answering. So then let's look at how we must ask, verse 6. Let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. What a powerful way to illustrate the, the need for faith when we pray. Whoever asks God for wisdom must believe that he is more than capable of answering this prayer and any other prayer that he chooses to. Our prayer shouldn't alternate between faith and unbelief. We must rest in the confidence that God will answer our request according to his will and his perfect timing. How amazing is that? But our text does provide a warning, doesn't it? It says that those hedging their bets, those taking an each way punt on the other hand, should not be so confident. Should I trust God or should I shop around to see if I can find any better offers? The doubter thinks. Verse 7. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now it's the same thing with salvation, isn't it? There can be no double-mindedness. A born-again believer exclusively lays all of his or her faith in Christ. You either have your faith solely on the blood of Christ or you, you have it on something or a basket of things that will not save. There's no grey area. Spiritually dead or spiritually alive. Two options. And it's, it's this faith in Jesus, the, the God of the Bible, that opens the door to God's limitless treasury of wisdom. And as one Puritan puts it, it is this unbelief that receives God's rejection slip, which reads, request denied due to insufficient faith. We can see, can't we, that doubting God is a serious business. The kind of doubt expresses a, a terribly low uh, view of God. To receive answers from God, you must come to him with the conviction that he gives rewards to those who diligently seek him. Hebrews chapter 11. In Matthew 24, Jesus told his disciples, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now this does not mean that God becomes a genie type figure in the believer's life that he's just waiting for our next shopping list. And this is all too common today, isn't it, with the, the word of faith movement. You hear prayers where people seem to think that they can speak things into existence. It's known as blab it and grab it. Now this is a, a huge unbiblical oversteer in the other direction which makes man sovereign. And it tries to turn God into Father Christmas. Our passage is speaking about a, a confidence in, in knowing that God, if this is your will, may it be done. 
A posture of confidence because of the one that we are praying to and that we know his power. The infinitely wise, sovereign God of the universe who is capable of answering any and every prayer he wishes. And in doing so, he's not depleted in his resources or attributes at all. And it's wisdom that tells us that God is God and we are not. I'm sure that one day we will be thankful that God did not answer some prayers in the way in which we dreamed up he would. Sometimes we do that, don't we? We have these ready-made plans all tied off with a, with a bow on them and we, we find ourselves praying for God to rubber stamp them. But better God's plans than ours. For he is infinitely wise and his plans are so much better than ours. For we pray to the God who knows the beginning from the end. For a Christian is to put away doubting and, and not hesitate to come to his or her father in heaven. And then verse 8. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This doubter doubts the power and goodness of God, doesn't he? As John Owen says, the doubter is a, a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. Doubters display no stamina in their commitment to the Lord. One moment they're inclined to, inclined to obedience and another moment they follow their own ways. They appear as ready to depart from God as to cleave to him. Now as much as double-mindedness was a, a concern for James 2,000 years ago, it should be so for us today here in 2023. How often do you feel the pull to to straddle two lanes. It shows up in all sorts of ways, doesn't it? Do we forget that we are Christian and become double-minded when we have the TV remote control in our hand? Do we forget that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit when we're around certain friends or at work or school? It's all too easy, isn't it? To be thrown around by the world like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. How many times are we double-minded as we, we do the things we hate and yet find it hard to do the things that we should? Just like the Apostle Paul who writes in Romans 7. Double-mindedness could be described as one eye on the Lord and one eye on us and our circumstances. A brief respite from a trial when both eyes are on the Lord. Then a trial comes crashing in and then our eyes become fixated back on the circumstances again. Washed around to and fro. This person's faith tends to be directly linked to how well things are going in their lives. This kind of thinking is dangerous and unwise. When someone's assurance is based on the, the blessings that they are experiencing, then this is a, a time bomb waiting to explode isn't it what happens when the trials begin they begin to walk by sight and not by faith now at worst these trials will prove that the the faith was never true to begin with and that the the shoots of faith that looked so promising had no roots alternatively if the faith proved genuine then the experience of the believer would be all over the place 
any assurances suppressed, ridden with doubts, because the faith is both immature and lacking in wisdom. It's the absolute opposite of having a, a faith that is perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And the sad thing is, it's so unnecessary because God provides this wisdom to those that ask and believe. Now, as we draw to a close, if you're an unbeliever, then the first step is trusting in Christ for salvation with absolute single-mindedness. That's your pressing concern and one that has eternal consequences. Flee to him. Come to him in prayer and ask for your sins to be forgiven. This is so, so important. And finally, if you're a Christian here this evening, if you've yet to come and seek the Lord in asking him for wisdom, then do so without delay. Ask to be sanctified by the Spirit of God working in you. And as a church, let us pray for these things with, with faith and encourage one another to have our faith made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A wisdom in believers that looks to glorify him in all that we do. Let's pray.